Hey, this is Zach Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. Because he has a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> Hello there, children. Hey, hey, kids. <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. And now, the hosts of the Stupid Cancer Show, Lisa Bernhard and Matthew Zachary. Woohoo! Monday, October 8th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 16-year young adult survivor of pediatric brain cancer. My name is Lisa Bernhardt, and I'm a 17-year young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay. Not okay! That 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. Tonight's show, a special show on breast cancer in Native American and Asian American women. Joining us tonight, Linda Borhan Stepanova. No, <laughs> I was so close. You were very close. Borhan, Borhan Stepanova. We'll be here all night. Borhan Stepanova. Borhan Stepanova. Woo! Easy for you to say. Uh, we do love that she's on the show tonight. She is from the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, founder of the Native American Cancer Research Corporation. Twyla Garcia, that's a little bit easier, breast cancer survivor from the Rosebud Sioux Nation. Doris Chang, Asian Breast Health Outreach Project of the Methodist Richardson Medical Center. And Helen Liu, she is a young adult breast cancer survivor. And in our spotlight, he's a man. <laughs> neither question. neither Native American nor Asian American. Yet. Nor female nor breast cancer survivor. That's right. Yeah, we let him on the show. Michael Solomon. Sounds Jewish, Matthew. Yes, I know. My people. Young adult survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and he is the author of Now It's Funny. All right, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer online at stupidcancer.org, the largest support community for the young adult cancer movement. So, welcome aboard. Another fun and exciting romp to hang on tonight. Stupid Cancer Show, where remission is not a cure and survivorship is all that matters. And a stupid cancer, welcome to any and all of our first time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we broadcast live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in New York City. Ooh! Yay! All righty. Well, we got a nice house tonight. We got uh, Mr. Kenny Kane. Como esta? Fresh from his travels. We'll discuss that in a moment. Oh, boy. We have Matty Beckett. Matthew Beckett. How you doing? Hey. Great. Oh, boy. Oh. Look at that. Yowzer. How you doing? 
Uh, Tame and Kim in the back, waving on the radio. How you Tame doing? In. She's adjusting. She's getting all Americanized working for us here. She is? From, well, I'm assuming so, because she hangs out with Kenny too much. We're, we're, we're breaking her in gently. <laughs> it's amazing. What, is this week three or week four? Tamin's still here. I think it's week three. She hasn't fled. I, I imagine her fle- fleeing the office with, like, the imprint of her in the door as she pl- plunges through it. Oh She's my. the real deal, though. A no. radiation oncologist from South Korea. Who's interning with us. I know. Go it's figure. A downgrade. <laughs> Go but we figure. have a very special guest tonight. Yes, we Our do. dear office mate uh, and friend, Maureen Sweet. Hi, everyone. How are very you, excited. Maureen? Doing great. It's good to have you on the show. What inspired you to be here besides losing some kind of bet? Oh, it, it, was, it wasn't screaming. just the bet. I, I had another <laughs> reason. Um, no, I mean, I've, I've heard you guys talking about this for so long. I'm really excited to be here. And you work for? For Cancer 101. And what is Cancer 101? Cancer 101 is another nonprofit organization um, for cancer patients. We help cancer patients get organized and informed from their moment of diagnosis through 10 years of follow-up care. So check us out, cancer101.org, twitter.com slash cancer101, or just Google us. We're pretty much everywhere. You're still hired. You're still hired, yes. (laughs) Very nice. Well, uh, we had a very busy week last week. I'm getting over something. Kenny is getting over something. I'm getting over and simultaneously contracting (laughs) by by proximity. Yes, exactly. Not by anything else. What would be the combination of travel and bacteria? Because that would be what Kenny looks like right now. (laughs) What he looks like. The unmade bed status of my life. (laughs) I thought your hair looked pretty good today, though. Yeah, thank you. I like this sort of sideways. It's elegantly disheveled. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's like streptococci jet blue. What? (laughs) It's actually (laughs) Schmidelta. That actually sounds like a disease. <laughs> Doctor, I've got Schmidelta. you got to help me. Schmidelta in my loins. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. Schmidelta. Kenny wins. Kenny for the win. Oh well, where God. were you, Kenny? Where you been? I was hanging out. Where have I been? Oh, my God. We're a hot mess. We're all going to. I've been, I've been <clears> everywhere. I've well. been everywhere, man. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's funny you should say that. I was down in, uh, New, I almost said New Orleans. I was down in Nashville hanging out with 100, 200, 300, 400, how many hundred nurse again. navigators. Oh, again. I was down the nurses. The, the National Coalition of Nurse Navigators at the annual NCON conference. Uh, last year it was in San Diego with the blackout, and this year it was in Nashville. So all the usual suspects like Testicular Cancer Foundation, Single Jingles, Give Forward, uh, Zarps, all of our friends, and... Uh, it's a combination of speaking to all of these nurses and the moonshine that that happened after that. Oh, the so. moonshine. Well, I guess that deserves one of these. Yeah, I'm Kenny Kane at Encon. As I spooned my mason jar <laughs> full of mo- full of moonshine. We love Encon, though. As I like to say, my favorite pissed-off nurses. Yes. Yeah. Actually, that's what she calls themselves. They're they're the, the one of the nicest. Most proactive groups of people out there fighting for young adults. It's really quite amazing. Yes. Well, anyway, I was at, um, <clears throat> I was getting sick I, on a boat. The phlegm. The yeah. phlegm is, uh, oh, yeah. phlegm's I've, in the house. I've got, uh, what do you call it, schmelta? Schmidelta. Schmidelta. Talk amongst yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> I was um, NYU, our good friend Katie Donahue at NYU here in the city, who runs the AYA program and the pediatric program at Hassenfeld. Center for uh, uh, Children with uh, Brain Tumors and Blood Blood Cancer Disorders Your had people. their first ever. My people, they they had their first ever survivorship fair, and they had another boat on the Hudson River, 
Oh, I saw this on Facebook. <clears throat> you, you keynoted, right? I was the keynote. Yes, she asked me to keynote. And, um, on a boat? On a boat. Neat. I actually had to sit on a chair. You know, you turn the chair backwards to look cool, and you sort of face the audience hanging over the, the okay. back of the chair. I was so just, so was, you faced a crowd full of young adult survivors spread eagle on a chair. Yes. Lovely. On a boat, uh, not uh, halfway boat. nauseous. Uh-oh. The the Hudson was rough that day. Fabulous. Was it? Yes, it was very George Clooney-ish in that sense of the film. I was waiting for the boat to you know do its thing. I, I throw up a little bit in my mouth for them. <laughs> so in any case, Gross. yes, there we go. Deck is one of these. Um, Did you have an ew also? I might have an ew somewhere. Yeah. That's okay. That's good. Though. Anyway, so they had their first annual Survivor Fair. Which was great. They had about 150, 160 people come, families, friends, uh, patients, survivors. Really wonderful stuff. But there's an organization that I never really talk about that was there for me. Because I always say I was very alone and there was nothing for me back then. There really was nothing for me back then. But I was connected with a group that was called Making Headway. And they, they're still around. They're doing quite well. They're very niche. They specifically raise money for Hassenfeld for the, for the pediatric children. Uh, and they all do quality of life. So I was given... Um, Free psychotherapy, uh, I have to pay for it. It wasn't very, very expensive uh, when I was very sick to meet other people kind of like me, but they were all pediatrics. But the, the psychotherapist, her name is Marcia Greenleaf. She's like my aunt now, 17 years later. We're, we're like Mishpucha. But she was there for me. She really helped me to try to understand the isolation and really try to find my space and my place. And she actually helped invent Matthew Zachary. Because most of you know that my my legal she, name is Matthew. Do you get applause for that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> result, yeah, results not guaranteed. Yeah. Yeah. No, she yeah. <laughs> results may vary. That's the ew that I thought you had. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. So Ooh. my my legal name yeah. is Matthew Zachary Greenswag. I'm not shy about that, but um, she helped me sort of try to identify the next me, the new me, the new mm-hmm. you know that new normal thing. And I couldn't play piano, and I had to re-identify myself, and I couldn't look myself in the mirror. But the the Making Headway group was there on the boat. They sponsored this conference. So I was so humbled that everything sort of came full circle. 17 years later, I paid a huge homage to them, and it brought like all these memories from like 96, 97, and how I first met Marsha and sat down with her. Some good PTSD. It was really good. Yeah. It, was like, it was interesting closure after all these wow. years. That like it, it was very humbling. And it wasn't about just dejuifying yourself. No, it was it was it was the opposite yeah. of de-ju- it was rejuifying myself. Right. It was re-identifying with no, I who I was as a person during those horrible first six to eight months before I even met anyone who could understand how to talk to me from a therapeutic perspective that wasn't my, you know, my parents or my friends. Right. A, a mental birthright, if you will. It was a mental birthright. Yes, exactly. Um, so you had a cathartic uh, coming home, so to speak. It was really exciting. Uh, and the crews went to the Statue of Liberty, came back, there was food. It was, it was just really a wonderful moment. It was a great day. They got total kudos for doing it. Nice. And it's going to be an annual event. So we'll be promoting it next year and, and now NYU Survivor Fair and Stupid Cancer. Awesome. BFFs. Awesome. And of course, I'm leaving on a flight at 8 a.m. tomorrow to go to the Scripps um, Nursing Oncology Conference, the 32nd annual Scripps Oncology and Nursing Conference. These are not the pissed off nurses that Kenny got to enjoy. These are the serious nurses, not that they're not serious, but totally clinical totally up-to-date, state-of-the-art medicine, how to talk to oncologists about this, and how to be better stewards of patient care. Um, and I'm, they, they don't typically have patients speak at these conferences, but I'm honored to be a patient at this conference, and it's going to be great. So you're like Schmadelta times 10 now. I'm, I am, I'm actually yeah. flying Schmadelta. Oh, oh Schmadelta. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, my flight is at uh, 8. Get this. Excuse me. I land at 1130 at the airport. Right. I speak at 1230. 
Wow. And it's a 45-minute trip from the airport. <laughs> Wait, you, you landed at 11.30? Yeah. You cut it close. I told them. I said, just bump me up. So, no, no, you'll get here. You'll be fine. Delta notwithstanding. So you're going to Uber right up to the back door? I'm going to Uber, exactly. And by the time you clear your throat with all the phlegm. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's going to be a mess. It'll be another half I hour. I am expecting to be a, a horrible hot mess. Um, anyway, in conclusion, before we bring out Michael, um, uh, I, I had the uh, my cousin, who many of you may know, David. Yeah. Uh, he's in the viral video for OMG 2012. He's struggling with brain cancer right now. Uh, he's in town. Uh, he brought his uh, 11-year-old. He has four kids. So he brought oh, his 11-year-old. four? He has four kids. Wow. 13, 11, uh, 9, and 7. Wow. And uh, he brought his 11-year-old, uh, Evan, with him today, and we went to the New York Aquarium. Oh, neat. With my kids. So it was kind of a wonderful bonding experience. He's, Where does he live? He lives in uh, in um, San Clemente in really? Orange County. We stopped there on the road trip. Quick oh. quick story about San Clemente. We were going from uh, Orange, OC, uh, UC Irvine, to San Diego. And I'm driving down, and I'm like, what's all this blue to the right of me? Because we're like, the highway's here, and then like a quarter of an the ocean? to the right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let's stop in this little surfer village. Beautiful place. Right. It's a wonderful place. Yeah. It's a wonderful place. That was lovely. I mean, you had such an emotional moment at OMG yeah. when you on the and the dance floor there actually. Yeah, we got him dancing. It was about, great. Yeah. It was really Your wonderful. Cousin. It was really really wonderful. Sweet guy. Yeah. So in any case, that's been this week in history of the Super Cancer Universe. But now it is time to bring out our first guest. And I'm I'm excited to have him on the show. Yeah. Michael Solomon is an author, filmmaker, and 11-year non-Hodgkin's lymphoma survivor. His new book is called Now It's Funny. How I Survived Cancer, Divorce, and Other Looming Disasters. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Michael Solomon. Michael. Hi, Michael. Hi. How you doing? Thanks for having me. No, we're Thanks really, we're really, Michael's one of those guys that beat down the door to get on the show, and I really respect that. So. <laughs> he sent us some emails, sent us his book. It's great. We're thrilled you could be with us. And the irony I, of that, his book is all about, now it's funny that a, a I assume a, a Jewish white male is on a show about African American, Latino American, Asian American, and Native American breast cancer survivors. We thought it was the perfect show. Yes. On which to have him. Yes. As a, as a matter of fact, I'm dressed as an Asian American woman, uh, as I call her right now. Okay, well that counts. Come on. I want to blend. I want to <laughs> fit in. Thank you so much for having me. It's really such a pleasure. I'm a big fan of the show, and it's it's just a, really a wonderful thing for me. So thanks for having me. Sorry no, about it's being a down the door, but um, no, no, it's good. We like that. We like it. We, you know, we say be you're an advocate. You, you are clearly it's good stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you're not sick of me yet. No. <laughs> so let's get to the nuts and bolts. Uh, you were how old when you were diagnosed? Under what circumstances, symptoms, issues? Go forward. I was 40 years old, and I was, um, you know, living my life just as most people live their lives, never thinking I would get sick, except I have a very, I think neurotic might be too strong of a word, but I have a, a father who tends to worry about things just for fun. And he kept harassing There's a lot of Jews me. here. We get it. Okay, so there you go. All right. We're speaking of Mishbuk, I heard you before. Okay, so I know where I'm at now. Yeah. And my father was haranguing me for years um, about getting a colonoscopy because there was a history of colon cancer in my family. My father had been going, and they'd been finding these polyps that were being removed, but no, nothing more serious than that. And my father is very good about reminding you about these things endlessly. So when I was 35, he told me, remember, when you're 40, You've got to get a colonoscopy. Then on my 36th birthday, hey, Mike, happy birthday. And by the way, you have four more years till your colonoscopy. And this went on until, of course, I turned 40. So I said, okay, I'm going to go get the test, and I'll see what happens. And I went to the doctor, and, of course, I was terrified because 
I didn't even know about the prep that goes along with colonoscopy. I just knew that there was going to be an uninvited guest in an area where I normally don't have yeah. guests. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. I was terrified. Yeah. Uh, and I went to the doctor, and the doctor almost laughingly said, after he checked me up, he said, you're fine. You're, you're in great shape. He said, you, you know, you guys come. His name was Dr. Faust, which, you know, scared <laughs> me already. I was like, great, I'm at Dr. Frankenstein's. And Dr. He, he said, Yeah. So he... He uh, gave me a checkup, and he gave me a prescription for a colonoscopy. And then as I was leaving his office, he said, oh, you should also get a chest X-ray. Hmm. So I'd like to say that I immediately went and got my colonoscopy and was very responsible about my health, but I didn't. I put the prescriptions down on my desk. I let them sit in my office for two months, sitting on my desk. And then one day I said, I'm going to be proactive about my health. I'm going to go and get this chest X-ray <laughs> because I was too afraid of the colonoscopy still. <laughs> So I got the chest x-ray, and everything seemed fine. And then a week later, at night, he called me at home, my doctor. And I said, oh, my God, I'm going to die. As soon as I saw the phone yeah. ring and I saw his name, right. I thought, oh, it's over. And he said, look, don't worry. I, I know I'm at home. I know you're at home. I know it's 9 o'clock at night, but it's nothing to worry about. I'm just calling because I saw something on your chest x-ray that's probably nothing on your left lung, and I want you to have it checked out. But don't worry. And you can't really say that to a person like me who is the son of <laughs> yeah. a father who worries. There's something weird there, but don't worry about it. Right, no big deal, on your lung. No one, no one even knew I had lungs until, you know, a week before. <laughs> and on top of that, I was a smoker. I had been a smoker for many, many years. I'd quit by then. But, you know, when you're a cigarette smoker, you know you're rolling the dice. And so I thought, oh, my God, I've got lung cancer. But I said, I'll stay calm. I'll see what happens. And so he said he wanted me to go and have a CAT scan done. And I said, okay, I can do a CAT scan. So a week later, I went, uh, actually a few days later, I went and had a CAT scan done. And 15 minutes after the CAT scan, he called me, and he was shaking. His voice was shaking, and he said, there's nothing on your left lung. I was wrong. But there's something on your right lung, apparently. And there's something on your liver. And, you know, he just happened to catch me right when I was with my six-year-old son. So I was terrified. And so he said, look, I don't know. It's funny. I liken it in the book to this episode of the Flintstones. I remember where Dino and Fred's x-rays got mixed up. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought maybe that's what happened to me. (laughs) He's got the wrong person. It's somebody else's cat scan. Damn, I have a tail. How that happen? (laughs) (laughs) So he sent me to have a – I had to actually have a sonogram done for this thing supposedly on my liver. So I go to get the sonogram, and, of course, it's me and 15 pregnant women. (laughs) <laughs> and they take the sonogram, they run it over my belly, and I'm thinking to myself, maybe I'm pregnant. I mean, I'm at that point trying to find any nice. reason to believe that, I, that I don't, nothing's wrong. And they tell me, there's nothing wrong with you. You have cysts on your kidney. We thought it was on your liver. We don't treat cysts on your kidney. They're benign. You don't have to worry about them. You're okay. So I thought, great. Now I just have to go to this lung specialist, make sure the thing that they saw in my lung is okay, and I'm clear. And I went, and he... I, I brought it to him, and he said, you know, in a very great voice, okay, Michael, let's take a look at this now. And he took my CAT scan, and he put it up on one of those little light boxes. Yeah. That was, and he started, I don't know what happened, but his fingers got all fumbly, and he dropped my CAT scan down below his desk. And it was one of those desks like you've seen in a, Co- in a Coen Brothers movie, you know, those like 800-pound desks. Uh-huh. couldn't move it. And he said, I can't tell you what's wrong with you until we can get that, but we couldn't move the desk. 
so we spent, and he was like a, a pretty scrawny doctor. So we spent, you know, a few minutes trying to budge this thing, but there was no way to move it. And I'm thinking, I can't believe that my life is hanging in the balance because I can't move a piece of furniture. <laughs> so finally, they got the maintenance guy who was, you know, a giant, and he came down and he pulled it, the desk away, took out my CAT scan, handed it to the doctor, and the doctor said, you may have cancer. <laughs> it looks like a tumor. Yeah. And so that's how I found out that I had, that was the beginning of me finding out that I had lymphoma. So when did you think that things got funny? <laughs> you know, it was the IKEA moment. Yeah, I don't know. I well, one of the moments certainly was when I was about to go and have surgery because my first tumor I had removed surgically, and as I was going in for the surgery, they were wheeling me on a gurney, and I'm sure anybody who's been in surgery recognizes this. It's like you see on um, on television shows where you see those lights overhead passing right. as you're being wheeled in. Oh yeah. And all of a sudden, the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen in my life appeared right above me. She was dressed in medical scrubs. And I thought, oh, my God, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And I'm completely drugged up now because, you know, they're getting me ready for surgery. And all I could think was, how do I get her phone number? Like, how do I make a connection with this woman before I go in? And I went through a few scenarios in my head. Of course, it didn't even occur to me that I'm wearing a shower cap. A little theme music that, yeah. Oh, I love it. Just, Marvin Gaye, my favorite. Yeah. So, <laughs> keep it going. Love it. So, I'm thinking, yeah, let's get it on as soon as I get out of surgery. And I should be done, you know, in about an hour and a half. That's what I thought. But then I had this moment of panic, and I thought, wait a minute. Why am I seeing the most beautiful woman I've ever seen right before I'm about to go into surgery that I may never come out of? And I thought, maybe this is the angel that you see before you go to heaven. Maybe all this talk about religion is true, and that's what happens. And so I panicked, and I didn't know what, was, what, what to do. Luckily, I passed out. Yeah. And then I went through the surgery, and I woke up. But after that, that was, I would say that after that experience, I realized there's nothing funny about cancer at all. Yeah. But there's no limit to the stupidity of humans, especially my stupidity, and the ridiculous things that you think and the ironic situations that you get into when you have a crisis like this. What were you, what were you doing at the time? What was your career? Where were you living? I was. I had a production company. I'm in the film business, and I do uh, films and television and commercials. And I had my own production business, and I had clients. Most of my clients were from Europe, and I was, you know, as they say, I was making a nice living, and and life was actually pretty good. So how did that transfer? How did that chronicle itself along this diagnosis and subsequent, I would call, a comedy of terrors, perhaps, given the Shakespearean nature of what's going on? Uh, how did that translate into the way you dealt with it, the way you dealt with your family, how you, you know, parenting issues, uh, and then channeling all of that back into some sort of a creative gob of opportunity? Well, the, the creative gob uh, was happened by accident as well. I, I'm, I'm a writer. I've always been a writer, and I just started taking notes about what was going on with me. I think it, maybe out of panic, but there was something in me that said. I'm going to want to remember this someday. I don't know why. So I started to, you know, every night I would, every time I went to the doctor, I would write down what was going on in excruciating details. I just wanted to remember what was going on. And then I had to try to, you know, first the first toughest thing was how do I tell people that I have cancer? Like how do you tell your mother? How do you tell your father? How do you tell your friends? And that was a, that was a huge thing for me to try to figure out. Luckily I had a very good friend who said to me, and this was really great advice, he said, look, You've got a lot on your plate right now. You can't be worried about when you're going to tell people as well. You need to just call up whoever you need to call up and tell them. 
So I did, and it was a, really the huge burden for me, except that I still hadn't figured out how I was going to tell my son, who was six years old. And I really didn't know what I was going to say to him because I didn't want to terrify him, and I really didn't know what was going to happen to me because at that point the doctors really didn't, they didn't know my prognosis, as you know, having gone through this. You go through the surgery, you do whatever treatments you have, and then hopefully everything's okay. So luckily I was in therapy at the time because my marriage was falling apart. I mean, I guess I was lucky that my marriage was falling apart because I had this wonderful therapist who said to me, when you talk to your kid, just be simple, be brief, and then do something that he likes afterwards. Hmm. So I just said to him, so, and so then I said, you know, I brought my son over to me, but I didn't do it in the way they do it on TV, you know, where you get down on your knees with him and you say, son, I have something I really, really yeah. need to talk to you about. I just tried to keep it as casual as possible. And his babysitter was even there. I waited for a moment until she was there. And then I said, my son's name is Luke. And I said, listen, Luke, dad's got to go to the hospital. He has something called a lesion. It's no big deal. Let's go get some ice cream. And he said, oh, okay. And then he said, when are you coming back? I said, I'll be back in a, a, you know, a few days. He said, okay. And that was it. So it was a huge relief for me. And I think it just kept him from being engulfed in the, the fear that surrounds, you know, cancer and particularly uh, anyone who's in that situation. You know, you, you're, you're terrified. And he was just, he was cool as could be. So tell us more about, you know, your book, you know, now now it's funny how I survived cancer, divorce, and other looming events. So who you are, as you mentioned, how did this all work where your marriage was falling apart, you're going through the diagnosis? Um, what did you, I mean, you said that you were in therapy, but with everything sort of, you know, crumbling around you, sort of tease out more of what you take us through in the book and how you sort of pulled yourself through through all of this happening at once. Well, as, as if that wasn't enough, um, my first diagnosis happened right before the World Trade Center got knocked down. And okay. I was in New York City, and I was that right. I was like, oh, thank you, Osama bin Laden. I mean, yeah. I'm sure everyone said that. Yeah. But, you know, I thought, man, I can't believe things can get any worse than this, but they did. Yeah. And so how I got through it, I'm not really quite sure. But I think that the, the most important weapon that I had, if you want to call it that, mm-hmm. was my sense of humor. Because I found that if I could find some of the irony in what was going on with me, I could distance myself. And so in it was it was as if in my weakness my strength was my sense of humor. And these just sort of ridiculous things that would happen along the way while at the same time everything was falling apart because you know you can imagine after the World Trade Center catastrophe all of my clients in Europe called me up and they said, "Look Mike, we love you. We love New York. We're really pulling for your health, but we don't want to get blown up." And we also <laughs> don't want to get Wow, anthrax. all right. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we, they didn't want to get, I don't know if you, you know, it, it, it sort of uh, dropped out of our collective memory, but at the time, too, there was the anthrax scare, especially in New York City. Right, sure. So we were, we were just terrified, and my whole life, I really did feel like my whole life was falling apart. And I don't, I'd like to say that I thought back then something heroic, like, don't worry, Mike, you'll pull through this, but I'm not a hero. I'm sort of just an average person when it comes to being terrified. And I was terrified, and I didn't know what to do. So I, I continued to to write about what was going on because it was cathartic for me, and somehow it just kind of relieved the pressure, and it was my way of processing things. And then once I finally got through my surgery, I thought, okay, I'm, I'm on my way up. My doctor said to me, you have an indolent lymphoma. You may not, not have to deal with this for another 20 years or so. And I thought, great, this is wonderful. I'm actually at full through. And, of course, six months later, I went for my next checkup, and I had another tumor. 
Well, we're running out of time, but let's fast forward to the book and the film, and let's start talking about where you are today. Well, where I am today is uh, I was making a movie at the time that I was uh, going through my cancer diagnosis. That movie's finished. It's out. It was called How to Eat Your Watermelon in White Company and Enjoy It, a film I made about uh, a guy named Melvin Van Peebles. And yeah. now I've, I've been approached about adapting my book, Now It's Funny, into a movie and um, possibly into a theatrical piece as well. You do have to tell us because there's a man with a, a bare bottom showing on your book cover in a hospital <laughs> gown, and you do pose the question on your website: Whose butt is this? Is it yours? Because you know. That's the question I get asked the most. It's not my butt. It's so not. who did you enlist? Who's your who stunt butt? Yeah. Your stunt butt. Oh no, no, I've been sworn to secrecy about that. It was just I was just looking for something that would kind of depict what it feels like to be a patient, and I thought that nothing speaks to it more than having your ass hanging out of your gown. Did you have butt auditions? Did <laughs> that be a butt audition? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I just, we, sorry, go ahead, Michael. No, no, no. I was just going to say, also, you'll notice that the guy's got really bad hair, and I, <laughs> that that's me. That's me all the way with the bad hair. So. With the bad hair, oh. And finally, just before we do have to wrap, you did. Uh, you are happily remarried, is that correct? I am happily remarried. I did, went. I, I don't know how that happened. Some woman took pity on me. And it, you'd, but you didn't marry the beautiful woman that you saw when you were having surgery. I couldn't find her. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought maybe that would have. You know, you would have really come full circle there. Well, the, the, of course, the politic answer to that is I didn't want to find her because I knew that I'd be meeting my beautiful wife later on. Absolutely. Right. Which I did. Which well I said. Did. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for making the time to come on the air. What is your website so people know how they can learn more about your story or the book? It's an easy one to remember. It's nowitsfunny.com. Well, there you go. Michael Solomon, nowitsfunny.com. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. This is a wonderful show. I'm so happy to have been part of it. All right. Take care of yourself. Thanks so much, Michael. Okay, you too. All right, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You know, what's interesting, can I just add here, if you go reading a piece on on Michael, he uh, went to Beverly Hills High. And he talks about how there was a cancer cluster among former students at Beverly Hills High School. I, I didn't learn this from Brandon and Brenda on that 90210. That Perry. <laughs> okay. Oh, boy. Hello, Hello. I'm Kent Brockman, Let's and this is I on Cancer. Just a fact, Maybe they explain Brenda, not Luke. I don't know. All right, here at Stupid Cancer, we promote and host hundreds of U.S. events each year and don't want you missing out on them. We're talking about financial webinars, fertility conferences, kayaking retreats, meetups, tweet-ups, road trips. Concerts and more. Say, hey, Kenny, where can people find out about these awesome events? Head on over to events.stupidcancer.com, events.stupidcancer.com. Coming up tomorrow night, we have a Stupid Cancer Happy Hour in North Carolina in the Triangle area, uh, and we're pretty light after that, so hopefully by next week we'll have some more dates to announce. Good stuff. All right, mark your calendars. The sixth annual OMG Cancer Summit, OMG 2013, is April 25th through April 28th, next year at the Palms Casino in Las Vegas. Learn more at omg2013.org. The Stupid Cancer Store. Okay, I was very excited about it. <laughs> now has over 14 awesome products for sale right now, from pins, pens, stickers, and lanyards, to an awesome Survivor Journal and the most amazing graphic tees you've ever seen. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer, stupidcancerstore.org. And lastly, don't forget about the Stupid Cancer Forums, which have over 3,000 members now. This is your premier online community. To connect with survivors, patients, parents, friends, caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.com and sign up with one click through Facebook, and that is your Stupid, Stupid Cancer, Cancer News. News. All right. LB, this is all you. We've got 
Doris on the line, yes? Yeah, Doris and Helen are on the line. Let's read their bios. Very exciting. Doris Chang is a survivor of papillary thyroid carcinoma and currently serves as the project administrator, administration manager of Asian Breast Health Outreach Project. Asian Breast Health Outreach Project, ABHOP, is a community breast health outreach program targeting the Asian population of the Dallas metropolitan area by creating breast health awareness, delivering educational information in a multitude of Asian languages, and providing free mammogram screenings to low-income, uninsured Asian women. Matthew. Helen Liu. Uh, For some people, there's life before and after cancer. Helen has learned to appreciate life more after cancer and believes that no woman should go be uh, be without mammogram screenings due to any socioeconomic, linguistic, cultural, uh, or knowledge barriers. Please welcome to the show... Doris Chang. And Helen Liu. Hi, guys. Hi. Hello, both of you. Hello. Hi, we know you're pressed for time, so we want to keep it lean and mean and fighting machine. Absolutely. Well, thanks for having us. We're really, really excited to be on the show, and thanks for doing the good work here on the radio here. Yeah, we, we've never, honestly, in 240 broadcasts, we've never done a show on the unique disparities facing Asian American women with breast cancer. So we're really it's happy. It's about to, time. We're, yeah, well, we're overdue, um, and uh, this is really great information for our listenership. So thank you so much for lending your, your experience and your, your wisdom to what we're going to talk about tonight. We appreciate the opportunity. So... Uh, let's get started then. I, I mean, Helen, uh, we, we have you here as, a, as an Asian American breast cancer survivor. We'd love to just hear your story. And, uh, you know, because I'm reading your, your bio here, that you're, you're a columnist, you're a teacher, you've been mm-hmm. lost of advisory boards. Talk us through your, your story and any you know, sort of unique disparities that were going on through that. Well, I was diagnosed actually the same week as my 43rd birthday. And then I went through two lumpectomy surgeries and 33 day uh, treatment for the radiation. I didn't have the chemo treatment because I was diagnosed with early stage and I didn't have to take any medication. So I was very lucky. And before cancer, I I was a very past med uh, I I was always look things at uh, from the sad side or from the bad side. But after cancer, I thought, well, you don't have to do that because you you can be happier and you just live life to its full. And that's the attitude change right after I have cancer. Of course, at the beginning, I was devastated and I didn't know who to talk to and what would become of me. But later on, I was able to form a group of people, we support each other, and then we get information, we exchange stories, and we were able to get through life and even start laughing. Uh, even start laughing, as our former yes. guest. So, Helen, did you have a mammogram? How was your cancer detected? Did you have yes. any symptoms? No, I didn't have any symptoms. Actually, I, I signed up to a clinical study that used a hormone patch to reduce your, your fibroid. And the last stage, I passed all the pre-screening until the last one was doing the mammogram. I was actually doing mammogram every year, but it was, this was a different image standard. For some reason, they caught something, and they said there is some calcification, and they need to verify if it's cancer or not. And so they told me to go in and do the needle biopsy, but I wasn't able to do that because that that 
location was too close to the chest wall. They were afraid they were going to punch a hole in the in the diagram. So they told me to do a surgical biopsy. That's when it's it's re- really strange because the pathology report came out that the the white spots they they were suspected that were cancer they were not and but at the margin they found out the cancer cell so i was lucky because they said if it wasn't for the pathology report they wouldn't find it so Dor- so doris talk to us more about screening then i mean is, scre- is screening for uh asian american women i mean outside of uh, helen's experience here just in general what are the sort of obstacles to getting asian american women screened well you know the the cultural attitude is is they don't we don't like to get a mammogram screening. We really don't want to have to see a doctor, period. You know, <laughs> unless there's a problem. And, and where does that come from that that line of thinking? Yeah, no, I, I mean, mean most people don't like to see a doctor granted, but Exactly. But I think we just work with this. We just we have so many priorities, so many other things, you know, the kids come first, the husband comes first, our careers come first. Yeah. Oh, I'm not you know, I'm not gonna let a little cold get in the way. You know, I think sure. some of it is that. I mean, just as a working woman here that just myself speaking I'm a Chinese American. I have kids, I have a husband, and I am I'm working in this wonderful organization and so everything is important. But I think what happens is as every woman would imagine, we we just get lost. We're just no longer yeah. the first priority. And so that's exactly what happens. And then on top of that, the fact that we don't like to see doctors anyway, well let's wait until something really bad happens. It's like a cold, ah, it's nothing. We're not gonna worry about that until really, you know, I need antibiotics. Well then I really gotta see a doctor. Now that's not how cancers Go. I mean, you need to start screening. You know when you're supposed to be screening, and when you have no symptoms. That's how we can fight it. And so that's why we had to change and 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 change that mentality altogether. And make sure they understand that no, it's good that you don't have any problems, but it's even more important than that you do your regular checkups, so that if there are any problems, we can we can we can fix it. We can fix it much easier. And so that's a big difference in in trying to. Or get people to understand the importance of screening. And also, there's a lot of language barriers, especially new immigrants. Um, they don't even, I mean, they don't speak English well enough to to know or even hear. You know, in the Dallas area, this is where Co- Susan G. Komen, you know, the foundation was, you know, here. Sure. And here, look at us. When we're out there doing our outreaches, a lot of the people that we talk to don't even know about that because they don't they don't understand it in English, and so they have not been getting the message. They didn't even realize that wow, there's a, such a thing as a mammogram. Because back home, in the Asian countries, not a lot of countries have those machines, or if they do, we don't know. You know, here where I talk about digital and you know versus analog machines. I mean, back home, some of these Asian countries, that's not even heard of. So they're not even hearing the, the, that that there is something you need to do when you're 40 years and up and have this type of a screening. So that's that's why the Asian woman probably didn't don't know that that so, is important. So Doris, let me just interrupt you for a second. We did a show last week. Uh, we've basically been uh, our show tonight has been uh, sponsored by Komen. So they are fully aware of the uh, the the disparities facing you know these specific ethnic groups. We did our show last week on African American and Latino American women, and one of the themes that came up consistently was this issue of stigma and this issue of of uh, a sort of pride and humility. 
And it's a combination of what you're talking about, which is like we don't think to be proactive in our health and get screened because we don't want to do something until we actually have symptoms. But in terms of like shame, like like the perception of uh, having had cancer in the uh, Latino American community is one of shame. Like you did this to yourself and it's God's way of punishing you. And is that is there a similar theme there in in your culture? In in the Asian culture, yes, there's a lot of we would consider those things they're bad things. You don't need to share bad things with people. You know, the so yes, there's some of that. A lot of it is you know, you just don't want people to know because they're not good news for people to know. So they have this don't ask, don't tell mentality. Number one, if they think they don't talk about it, then they won't get it. It's almost like a taboo word. Right. <laughs> so let's not talk about cancer because if we talk about cancer, then, gosh, one of us will get to it. It's sort of like that, too. And then some of it is that the stigma is there. I mean, oh, my goodness, I have cancer, and a lot of times you don't you don't want to share that because you're not sure what's going to happen to you, and you're afraid to share it. And then for the Asian culture, yeah, it's shameful. I mean, in, in some respect, you're like, well, I, I don't know what came, you know, why, and then you feel like you're a burden. More than anything, I think that you feel like you, you are burdening your family with your disease. And and that's that's the Asian culture. We don't we don't want to share it because, number one, it's not good to share. I mean, what, what you know, I'm, I'm bearing you bad news. And then on top of that, we're burdening our families. And so that's why I think a lot of a lot of it is is there. They don't want to be able to tell people that. And then, unfortunately, that goes to even your family members. Um, so I know people who actually, you know, like me, I was diagnosed with cancer. And my mom actually still thinks I, she's like, that wasn't cancer. She still is in denial. Is that right? Wow. Yes, yes. But And then I, I know of instances where patients, you know, do not know of their you know cancer history because their parents might not be telling them that actually uh, we had breast cancer in the family. Again, it's, those are things that is not shared because, number one, we don't want our loved ones to be worried about us. Mm-hmm. And so especially if we have elderly parents, oh, yeah, I'll take care of it. They don't need to know that. But but on the other side of the coin, though, they don't realize that, wait a second, now your mother could be at risk because you have breast cancer. So I have to, you know, teach the, that part to them. Well, I understand you don't want your parents to worry, and you know, but you need to tell them so that they also could be able to look out for their health. There could be some, some things that your, you know, mother, sister, or daughter could be doing because of this disease. We don't have to fight it alone. We need so to wanna, share it. Yeah, I want to come back to some stats about about Asian American women um, in just a second. But first, let's go over to Helen. Helen, do you come from a traditional family? Do you have family members who are here? Can yes. you speak anecdotally to their reaction? I mean, I just rem- I remember actually just as an aside, meeting two young Asian American women from Los Angeles. One mm-hmm. had younger parents that were living in the U.S. The other had older, more traditional parents. Um, that were living in uh, she was Korean, I believe, and she and they had vastly different experiences in terms of how they could relate to their parents, what they could tell their parents, um, mm-hmm. what their parents could handle. Obviously, the more traditional being the, the ones who had more traditional parents, older parents, could barely communicate with them at all, could barely get across what was going on. What's your experience, sort of anecdotally, um, in going through your illness? And and is your is, would you describe you come from a traditional family or one that's a little bit yes, more liberal. I pretty yeah. much come from a traditional family, and it was hard to to tell my parents. So actually, my parents were here at the time, but they were with my sister in Connecticut. Okay. And I told my sister, and I just told Doris 
how it came up to them because they were arguing about something else that's not very important. Then all of a sudden, my sister just couldn't hold it anymore. I said, "Stop arguing! Helen is having cancer." <laughs> <laughs> so that's how it came out. <laughs> yeah. So that must have shut everybody up. (laughs) Yeah, and I didn't want them to worry. That's why I didn't tell them. But I told my sister because I had to go through all those those surgeries and everything. Um, It's hard. And uh, back to were you able to communicate then with your parents going forward, or no, just mainly with your sister? I didn't talk to them too much about this. I just told them that I had surgery, and they did call me and ask me how I was doing. And, of course, you would always say that, I'm doing fine, thank you. <laughs> did they visit or no? They just called. Uh, they they didn't visit because they were actually on their way back to Taiwan at the time. I see, right. Yeah, so they didn't come back and visit me because I, I told them not to, and I right. didn't want to worry them too much. So they called me uh, on on a weekly basis, and we converse, and I just told him everything's fine. Don't worry too much. And and it's also hard to to actually get my husband and my son to accept the fact because, like Dora said, even after ten years I was diagnosed, my husband still said you didn't have cancer. That wasn't cancer. I was like, okay, then what it was? I don't know. <laughs> so do they? Is it just because they associate cancer with death and the fact that you did not die that he just doesn't think that they just don't want to believe? That it was yeah, as serious I guess, as it was? Right, that was part of it. And as you mentioned before, I think Asian people, sometimes they think cancer is a curse. So yeah. they don't they don't want the curse to be cast upon them. And I think by avoiding to admit the fact that you have cancer, maybe that's why they, they think they can avoid the the having cancer or they can avoid the fact that you did have cancer. They they just deny it. Yeah. So let me let me flip things back to Doris real quick. One of the stats that I read on your website, which is the Asian Breast Health Outreach Project, I'd like you to talk about that in just a second, is that there are over 60 different subgroups with a vast array of different languages and cultures within the Asian ethnic group itself. That has to be a barrier just out of the gate, right? Oh, you got it. Absolutely true. I mean, when we look at the Asian ethnic group, you're like, oh, one word. No, we're talking about, yeah, like you said, that many different uh, cultures, and each culture and each language is as different as to itself it is as to English. So it's uh, every language is different. So it, for our organization, we're not, there's no Asian, there's no Asian language. There is right. 60 <laughs> plus languages. Right. <laughs> So, you speak Asian, don't you? Yeah, exactly. So, yes. So that is exactly why, you know, we exist. The Asian Breast Health Outreach Project is not an Asian – it's not just one. You know, there's a lot of different people underneath this, this name that makes this project happen. Um, so when they call into our main line, although we can't speak all 60 languages, we could provide seven of the major languages um, in that is – spoken in the Asian um, countries, and so at least a majority of the people who live here who actually have language issues, they could call our main line and at least speak to us about, you know, the the problems they might have been harboring that they're not even sharing with their family. You know, when we're out there in outreach and we're teaching them, you know, breast health awareness, at the end of the, uh, the session, someone could come up to us and go, gosh, I'm so glad you talked about it. You know, I've had this lump for five years and I didn't know who to talk to. I mean, they are literally, they didn't know where to 
go to talk to people about it because obviously yeah. they can't talk to friends, they can't talk yeah. to family because it's a shameful thing. It's a curse. Doris, Doris let me just. We, unfortunately, we have to wrap really soon. But before we wrap, this is actually a big question to lay on you. But if you can wrap this up real briefly, I'm fascinated in this because a lot of Asian women in their home countries, like Japan, there's known for being a very low incidence of breast cancer. Correct. And then, but what I from what I've read on some of the common literature is that once coming to this country their chances for getting uh, breast cancer rise considerably. So I wonder if you could touch on those numbers and then also mention some um, of the medicines from, say, Chinese medicine tend to be more preventive in nature than our medicine here. How does that factor in or does it in terms of uh, breast cancer? Well, um, to answer your, your first question, mm-hmm. uh, you're right. It, so so far from the literature that is out there, the Asian populations don't seem to have cancers as high as if once they moved to America. Mm. And a lot of the information I, we're seeing is that it's the acculturation factor. Um, that is, once a person immigrates to a new country or new surrounding, if they've been living in the near surrounding for 10 years or more, they actually have the same breast cancer risk as a white female. So and those people be, who don't think it's environmental... Sure. Yeah. Again. Right. That's exactly right. And actually, huh. now in the most, you know, the latest literature you're, I'm seeing, as the Asian uh, cities are urbanizing in the Asian countries, the the rise of breast cancer is is, is being seen as well. God so bless before, the American diet. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're taking healthy foods over there to the yeah. states, you know, Port so. McDonald's. Yeah. Exactly. So as as those cities are urbanizing, yes, there's a rise, um, you know, in breast cancer mm-hmm. in those um, countries as well. So absolutely, environment has a lot to do with it. So the more reason you need to know your risk, you need to stay healthy by exercising, um, you know, doing what you can to minimize your risk. Know your uh, breast cancer history. Um, you know, ask your parents, ask your sister, talk about these things because, you know, we're all in, in this together. Anyone who has breast is at risk. Um, and then, although, mm-hmm, I'm, ahead, sorry, I'm sorry, Neil, I just I just wanted to move you along to the point to the piece about say Chinese medicine. Is yeah. there in terms of sort of preventive? How, how is the approach different there for something like breast cancer? Well, the the Chinese uh, way is the natural way. A yeah. lot of herbal um, uh, uh, treatments that I think over experience they find that it's work it works. But I don't know how much how well tested those, you know, remedies yeah. are and you don't know if those, you know, whatever you know, herbs that they're eating have any type of counter um action with mm-hmm. of the western medicine you're eating. So I always it's great that, you know, they're reading up on it and they try to, you know, do what they can by eating naturally to prevent, but the bottom line is at the end of the day, um you know, you need to make sure that you do what you can by doing a mammogram because that's the only way you know that's whether strange. you are healthy yeah. or not. And if you are taking those herbs, let your doctor know. So the doctors, you know, if there are certain counteractions of things, at least you guys are on the same picture. You guys know exactly what type of things you're eating. So the doctor knows, you know, what to prescribe or not prescribe for you. Definitely. So. All right. Well, you guys, we have to wrap on. Uh, it's so great having both of you here. Helen Liu and Doris Chang. Um, and so Asian American women, as with all women, don't be ashamed, communicate, go get your screenings, and uh, 
be careful and take take your environment into account as yeah. well. Yeah, okay. stay, stay in Asia if you want to live. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you, ladies. All thank right. you so much. Good luck with everything. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Chang and Helen Liu. Nice to meet you. Awesome. Thanks. Fantastic. Really good. I mean, I, I love these shows. I love the yeah. fact that we can really highlight this. It, it's we, we just don't know any right. of this, and it's so enlightening. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, we have Linda on the line, so let's introduce Linda. Go for it, Matthew. Okay. I will do my best, and she will scorn me for mispronouncing it, but let's see. Linda Bernhas-Stipanoff uh, is an MSPH and the, uh, a Ph.D., uh, Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. She's worked in public health since 1971, long before I was born. She is the founder of the Native American Cancer Research Corporation, a community-based 5013 nonprofit, American Indian-operated organization, and she's worked with the Native American cancer survivor community since the 1980s, clearly an expert. We're thrilled to have her on the show, and she will be joined very shortly uh, by Twyla Garcia, so we'll bring Twyla on when she calls in. Linda, welcome to the Super Cancer Show. Hi, Linda. Oh, she, I, I have to unmute her. There we go. Unmute that one. There we go. Linda, hello. Hi. Thank you very taking much. It, taking your muzzle off. When yes. You <laughs> well, you've been listening in for the last couple of minutes on our, our the uh, the Asian American, and we're we're just seeing this this incredible trend in terms of you know our show last week was on Asian African American Latin American, and and while the the disparities are kind of consistent, the reasons for them are very unique to the culture. So we're really excited to have you on the show to talk about the Native American community. I think it's the least um, made aware of. I just made those languages. <laughs> grammatically, grossly, grammatically incorrect. <laughs> we are least aware of the, the Native American disparities, and I would, I would just love to have your wisdom for the next 15 minutes or so, and hopefully we can get Twyla to call in uh, to share her story. So why don't we just get started? Okay, sounds good. Um, basically, um, we have different types of cancers in different regions of the country. If you look at our breast cancer um, in Indian country, you're going to see much, much higher problems in American Indians who are from the northern plains and from the southern plains in comparison to other parts of Indian country and in comparison to other population groups. We don't know exactly why it's so much higher um, in northern and southern plains. By northern plains, I mean the states that border the Canada-U.S. Uh, border, which basically is native people. We really don't recognize those borders. Um, we have very similar problems with Canadian aboriginals who are right on the other side, um, and they're our relatives. Uh, the southern plains include Oklahoma, Kansas, and Texas, uh, primarily Oklahoma. And they're very, very different. But we have a higher number of people who are from the southwest who are affected by breast cancer. And we've been very lucky in um, Indian country. Uh, you talked about the 60 different cultures with the Asian community. Um, and we also have very different tribal nations. We have 565 federally recognized tribes. Wow. We have over 200 state-recognized tribes. Um, but we have 14 of our tribal nations, our urban Indian programs, who have been funded by the CDC for breast and cervical cancer early detection programs. And these tribal programs, um, just in the 14 programs, remember there's 565 nations, um, they screen more American Indian and Alaska Native 
women through their program, those little 14 programs, in comparison to all of the other states, the number of people that they screen who are American Indian. And the tribal programs are very unique um, and very creative in how they bring people in. Um, They have different types of support events. We have quilting events. Uh, Pumpkin uh, uh, is a woman who is from the Michigan area. About 12 years ago, she decided that the pink for Susan G. Komen, because Komen and Komen and Avon and many of the other foundations have been supporting using pink, she said, well, we wear our shawls in our powwows and when we do traditional regalia. Um, let's do a pink shawl. And so she started this whole movement of a pink shawl that now has spread throughout the U.S., and it's in uh, New Zealand, it's in Australia, it's throughout Canada, um, and it's very much an awareness uh, for, for our community. Similarly, the men said, hey, what about us? And for their different types of attire for our different tribes, but the men have shirts that have ribbons on them, and part of the ribbons go back to prior to the Trail of Tears. Um, and so the men started wearing uh, ribbon shirts with pink ribbons on them to show support for breast cancer for the women in the tribe and for the Native men diagnosed with breast cancer as well. Interesting. Linda, let's back up for a second. You you lost me a little bit here. Um, so 565 tribes, 14 programs. Ex- explain again how that works. Where are the programs and how, did they, how is there access for all these women in, in the tribes, which seemingly, you know, seems like a large number of tribes, a small number of programs, but it seems that it's effectively working. But how, how does it walk us through that again? Yeah, it is effectively working in the 14 communities uh, where okay. they are. It does not necessarily reach out to other programs. There are programs such as uh, my tribal nation is Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, and they do reach out to other tribes that live nearby them. Nav- uh, Navajo Nation uh, reaches out to Hopi. Now, Hopi also has is funded by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, but there's a big mountain range that's in between right. where some of the, the communities are. So Navajo Nation continues to reach out and help Hopi people also through their program. Um, You're right, it's a very small number. Mm -hmm. We only have 14 of our communities. um, Mm -hmm. So the majority of Native people are not included in that, which is why we need state programs and other types of initiatives to reach out to our communities so we can have access. We have a lot of the same perceptions um, as the previous speakers were sharing with the Asian community where our traditional beliefs are we weren't supposed to use the word, uh, we believed it was a curse, uh, we believed that somehow you're being punished, or you're to be a lesson to, train, to, to show somebody else how a good woman would act while she's dealing with disease. Hmm. Um, you know, there's all different types of different traditional beliefs. But we're getting more and more people in Indian country informed about breast cancer and that they do need to take part in screening. And I think a lot of the reason for this are those 14 programs, even though they're in small areas, they share their materials and they present at different programs to let other tribal nations understand what can and what should be done to help bring our communities into these very, very appropriate programs. 
Linda, this is Matt. I had a quick question about the adoption of technology. It's my understanding that there is a large, uh, like the cell, like the, there's no landlines, for example, so it's hard to make like traditional phone calls. But a lot of these tribes are using cell phones. Is there any messaging or education brought to them through mobile technology about screenings and awareness of of uh, these opportunities? Um, it's very sporadic. There are many communities. I mean, if you had asked this question even um, eight years ago of Navajo Nation, if you look at the national data, it would show that 25% of Navajo Nation has telephones. But what the data don't tell you, and it's why you have to have local people from the community working with you, uh, is that most of those phones were in the villages and in, in businesses. There weren't that many in the homes. Navajo and many of the reservations, Pine Ridge, Rosebud Reservation, uh, many of them have started to put in cell phone towers to increase access. But in terms of sending a lot of messages through this, there's been some efforts to start to use Facebook. Um, we've been doing, we just completed a survey with Muscogee Creek Nation in Oklahoma, Intertribal Council of Michigan, Rapid City Regional Hospital, Great Plains Tribal Chairman's Health Board, and our program, Native American Cancer Research Corporation, um, trying to find out how our community members feel about technology and what the access is. And what we found is over two-thirds of the people are actively using cell phones, and it was about a half of them were using Facebook. Um, so I think it's a good uh, strategy. I think that it has not been used that heavily yet because it's been very recent that we've started to get these cell phone towers in our community. And actually we just got funded to start to do a mobile health initiative um, in the Southern Plains through Rapid City Regional Hospital Walking Forward program. That's fantastic. So we're going to be excited yeah. to see how it will work. Yeah, that uh, sounds pretty amazing. That's very, very yeah. cool. Lynn, another question that I wanted to ask you that came up on our uh, African American and, La and Latina show was this notion of distrust of doctors, of white doctors in particular, uh, that a lot of them in the community, in the, in the uh, in those communities, Latino community in particular, don't go and seek medical uh, help in a traditional, in a big city hospital, um, because of their distrust of doctors. Does that? Can you speak to that in terms of the Native American community as well? Um, yes. Yeah. We have the largest uh, Native American survivor support and education network in the United States, and about half are breast cancer survivors. Of all of our um, survivors, only 12% go through Indian Health Service. Hmm. Um, they're more likely to go through Medicare and, Meta, uh, and um, Medicaid because we have 46% of our people are diagnosed before age 50. So even though white women are the wow. highest prevalence of breast cancer, our people have a different pattern, which means we cannot wait until we're 50 years old to start screening. Those screening guidelines are designed for white women, and it's important for white women, but we're a population. We need to have support to start screening. You're diagnosed at a younger age, you're saying, more in line of with what our organization is about. 46%, yes. Wow. Diagnosed before age 50. Wow, okay. Yes. And then there's this whole movement. We're seeing... Um, younger people in all racial groups being diagnosed with breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, there is an annual conference on young women with breast cancer that usually meets every February. It's a fantastic program. Um, and it's 
it's riveting to see how incredibly strong these women are and their family members who come with them. Um, so I, I cut you off in terms of the distrust. So are you saying then that that does not exist as much, or or, it or? only twelve percent, twelve yeah percent go through Indian Health Service? Only twelve okay. go through Indian only Health 12. Services. Wow. So okay. that is, and, and what's interesting there is that uh, 40% of our survivors in our network are from the Southwest, which is where there are many Indian Health Service clinics. The problem is Congress has underfunded Indian Health Service programs, anywhere from 40 to 60% of the documented need, which means that every year, beginning on October 1st, the tribe has to make priorities of who they're going to treat and who they're not going to treat. And they run out of money, usually by May. So if I go through mammography screening and I have a, um, a mammogram and biopsy shows it's stage two, through the contracted health services, which, again, it's because it's so underfunded. It's not because the docs don't want to help them. They do. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I get into treatment, it'll be six months later. Wow. Six later, it is yeah. going to be stage three. So here is Indian Health Service and the tribal health program so incredibly underfunded. If I go in as a tribal member with stage two, the cost of my breast cancer in that first year is about $35,000. Um, if I go in six months later as stage three, I'm looking at eighty-five, ninety thousand dollars $90,000 for the first year of treatment. Right. Wow. So by having these delays, so we have very big problems with system delays, which is why many of our programs have turned to um, Harold Freeman's concept of patient navigation. So we have Mm -hmm. trained native patient navigators um, in many of our different communities, and I'll tell you, this program works. People who don't want to go in uh, or make different excuses to not go in um, for the treatment because they'll say, oh, you know, there's there's no parking places, so creator must not want me to go in and have this done. And the mm. navigator's there with him and says, Mary Lou, go in the door, sit on the bench right inside, and I'm in a parked car, and I'll come get you, and we're going to go in, and we're going to find out what's going on with your health. And so the navigator is, is the assertive one who works with the patient and helps them get into higher-quality care. Nationally, we have the poorest um, five-year relative survival, which means it's a percentage of people who are alive five years after being diagnosed with right. cancer. Um, our percentage is the lowest of any ratio group. Wow. So, so we've had, um, we're actually just about 60% are wow. alive, five years of na- nationally. In our, in our network, um, which is our supportive program, it's uh, through our website and other people referring people to us, navigation over the phone, navigation in person, finding someone local to help them, we're seeing 80% are alive five years after diagnosis. Hmm. So a lot that, of what that's a good number, with, then. It's, a, it's an incredible number. And it's not due, I, I'm not, we're not taking credit. It's not due to Native American Cancer Research Corporation. It's due to all of these different Native programs, local programs, who are using local people sharing their stories about work, what works. They're doing digital stories in so many of our communities now that are saying, yeah, I had cancer and I'm alive. I'm feeling really well. Um, they're really proactive, and they're doing terrific work, but they're all underfunded. You know, so it's, but it's a theme across all of our different programs. 
Linda, I just wanted to chime in. Twyla was unable to join us tonight. Are you able to comment on her story? We'd love to hear from that perspective. Oh, I tell you, Twyla is absolutely wonderful. Um, Twyla had, uh, was having trouble getting into regular screening. Uh, our navigators, our, we call them Native Sisters in our program, uh, met Twyla at some of our local community events, and those were the community events that were down in Denver. And um, they got her signed up to do a, a screening, and her husband was having severe problems, um, very serious heart problems. She had an abnormal finding, but because she was so focused on her husband, sounds very similar to the Asian story, right? Right, Everybody yes. First. And she has a wonderful daughter um, who was born blind, you know, so she has to take care of her lovely Rosie as well as her husband, and she just focused on them. Her husband walked on or passed away, and um, our navigator was in contact with her again and said, you have to come back in. So they got her back in, and she, her biopsy was positive that she had cancer. She signed up for different programs, and the different programs threw out her paperwork. And I'm not certain if it was just Twyla's. We've had a problem many times that we start paperwork with Medicaid, because, again, Twyla was young at the time of her diagnosis. She was in her early 40s. Um, and our paperwork gets started through the CMS system, and then it gets thrown out because people realize we're Indian, and they think that Indian Health Service is health insurance. Oh, boy. Hmm. Indian Health Service is not now. It never has been, and it never will be health insurance. It's too underfunded. It doesn't have the different programs. There's a lot of reasons why it isn't. But the federal government does not recognize it as health insurance. So she was struggling. She knew she needed to do something. And then um, we thought we got her accepted into one program. And then somebody said, oh, no, you can't go into this program. There are just all different types of delays. So she ended up working with three different navigators, or native sisters, who came in and advocated for her and said, this woman must be taken care of. She needs to be treated. She, Her family needs her. Her community needs her because she's very eloquent. I'm so sorry you can't hear her talk. Or actually, you can hear her talk on our website. But um, she's just wonderful. So she went through her treatment with the assistance of our um, Native sisters, and she had a lot of challenges of going through it. And she is now one of our strongest advocates. She's doing incredibly well with her own health. Um, and she and her daughter come to many of our other community events, and she always speaks right up and says, no, we need to do this. She's been the model in some of the different local programs, like the Day of Caring, um, where uh, people, the breast cancer survivors model clothing and just show, you know, not only do you live after cancer, you can be beautiful. (laughs) Well, you've done an amazing job, and again, I'm really sorry that we were unable to have her on the show tonight. We have about uh, two or three minutes left. Can we just uh, come full circle to the, you know, the Native American Cancer Research Corporation was, when did it begin? What have been your findings? And what have, sort of, what's the hope for the future that you've discovered through your work? Um, well, I'll tell you, when we for, well, our, our organization started in 1998. We're a community-based, nonprofit, American Indian-operated um, corporation. And we're very small. We're very small. Luckily, we have wonderful volunteers, um, such as Twyla, um, who help us with our work. We have a supportive care education on our website. 
it's, it looks like it's a little tree, and you're a hummingbird when you're on the website. You, the sidebar has 85 Native American cancer survivors sharing excerpts of their story of dealing with cancer. Uh, about 35 of those are breast cancer survivors. Uh, it has examples of questions to ask your provider. It has ways to improve communication because our native pattern of communication also contributes to disparities. Uh, physicians frequently don't understand what we're asking. So occasionally we'll get into trying to work with iMessages, which is not, not anything that's native to any of us, um, to, our own, to our own tribal nations. Um, what we see in the future is that we started our program with funding from Susan G. Komen for the Cure, and we focused on breast. Right now in our program, we have more than half of the survivors are of cancer sites other than breast. Okay. We need to update the breast information. We need to it to other areas. We're definitely going into mHealth. Um, we are going to be doing some stuff with Facebook uh, probably within the next year. Um, again, we're just so small, we can't just jump in and do it. But we're all committed to do this. We also have different issues with comorbidity. 38% of our cancer survivors, breast cancer survivors, are also diabetic. One half of them were diabetic prior to their breast cancer diagnosis, and the other half had breast cancer before they were diagnosed with diabetes. The problem with this is if we get our drugs through Indian Health Service or Tribal Programs formulary, we usually get glucophage to control our insulin for diabetes, and almost all of the breast uh, cancer treatments include adriamycin as one of the drugs. We think that the adriamycin and the glucophage interact with one another, which not in a good way, which means that the person isn't getting enough support for their blood sugar level, so their diabetes is spiking and dropping, which is how so much organ da damage occurs with diabetes. Likewise, they're not able to absorb as much of the adriamycin and with other the other chemo drugs that may be in the cocktail that they get for part of their treatment. Um, so this is quite significant. So we need some unique programs that help Native women who are and men who are breast cancer survivors as well as diabetes um, patients. Well, um, you sound like you have your finger on the pulse of everything that needs to happen, and I'm so glad that we were able to... Uh, get you to participate. We're thrilled to be working with the Susan G. Cummins Multicultural Council, so I, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the show. We are out of time, so I, I, I have to wrap. But, I, again, like this has shed so much light, and I really hope we're able to sort of amplify your voice and, and bring more attention to sort of th this unique ethnic population. Yes, and thank you very much for the invitation. And, Matt, if you can, please give people our website. Thank you uh, very well, much. What is your we what is your website? Um, it's N-A-T, like Native, A-M, like American, the full word cancer dot org, natamcancer.org. We'll right, put we'll that, up, throw that up for sure. In our chat room. Absolutely. And, Linda, before we let you go, you have to pronounce your last name for us so we know if we got it right or at least close. <laughs> it sounds like bird in the hand stepping off, bird hand stepping off, but everyone calls me Linda B., and my name was taken for to honor my stepfather, and I'm never offended if it's abbreviated. He was not offended if it was shortened either. <laughs> okay, thank you so All right, much. Well, thank you. Linda Berhan stepping off. There we go. Bird in the hand stepping off. Bird in the hand stepping off. Go, Lovely. Like that. Good luck to you. Thank you so thank much. Thank you, Linda. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. All righty. And now it is time for our closing sequence. Prepare to act.
activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. All right, everybody, that is tonight's show, number 240. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. I'd like to thank our in-studio guests, Mr. Kenny Kane, Matt Beckett, Tammy Ken, not really guests, and Maureen Sweet, Doris Chang, Helen Liu, and Michael Solomon, Linda Burham, Stepanoff, and Twyla Garcia. All right, everybody, join us next week. It is the last of our shows in conjunction with Susan G. Komen uh, and their multicultural... Council, yes. Advisory Council, yes. Breast Cancer in the LGBT Community. Joining us, Philip Deitch. He's a member of the LGBT National Advisory Council at Susan G. Komen for the Cure. Nurit Shine, who is chair of the LGBT National Advisory Council. Liz Margolis, executive director of the National LGBT Cancer Network. And kicking it off in the spotlight, a good friend of the Stupid Cancer Show, young adult breast cancer survivor, Mimi Ferraro. Okay, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at iTunes.stupidcancer.org or check out the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Lisa Bernhardt and myself and the whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show, have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday Good night, everybody. at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. Monday. Every cancer survivor's over 65. We're all veterans of a battle, and the bulk of us more in this world too many.